there was a feeling human being that was in the center of this court and that he would decide in the right way. Now, what you read is a very human thing and very emotional, as you said, but it's also based in law, which is the 14th Amendment. And he did talk about equal protection and those things. So it wasn't just a, a wonderful flowery uh, recitation. It was also grounded in, in the law of the Constitution. Hi, I'm Neil Katyal, and welcome to Courtside, a podcast about the Supreme Court and what it means to you. I've argued 50 cases at the Supreme Court, and I served as the federal government's top courtroom lawyer. But I want the court to come alive for you. Each week, I'm going to discuss a single Supreme Court case with one guest, someone who's not a lawyer and who can translate the case into plain English. Today's guest is my dear friend Rob Reiner, the legendary Hollywood director. He's also someone who directed, in a way, the Supreme Court litigation around marriage equality. He foresaw the battle for same-sex marriage at a time when few did. I'm so excited to bring him to you. All our episodes are posted over at neilcatiel.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff. You can support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode of Courtside lands right in your email. That's neilcatiel.substack.com. On my Substack each week, you'll get access as a subscriber to all sorts of information about the case. I've summarized the case in a three-pager, abridged the actual text of the decision, and provided the full decision. All of that is available to you as a paid subscriber. Now, each week, I begin with a bit of legal news and then turn to a discussion of a Supreme Court case and then conclude with a softer discussion about creativity, performance under pressure, and how each of these guests goes about living their lives. This week, we're going to discuss same-sex marriage in Obergefell v. Hodges, the 2015 case that made same-sex marriage the law of the land. It's an extraordinarily moving story, and I'm anxious to bring it to you and have you learn how Rob Reiner, a guy without a law degree, masterminded a lot of this litigation. So before that, I'm just going to spend a few minutes on the legal news of the week and focus on the Mar-a-Lago prosecution of former President Donald Trump. Now, a reminder that Donald Trump is under felony indictment for mishandling classified information. The nation just celebrated the July 4th holiday. I'm not sure if it's more likely that Donald Trump celebrated that holiday by handing out sparklers or handing out secret documents. The big development over the week was Judge Aileen Cannon moving the prosecution forward and finally having the arraignment of Walt Nuda, who was Donald Trump's personal valet. Nuda is integral to the way the documents in Mar-a-Lago were maintained, and he's caught on the videotape several different ways. Amazingly, Walt Nauda couldn't get a lawyer to represent him for the last several weeks, but he now finally has one. You know you've done something really wrong when you have trouble retaining counsel in Florida. I'm not surprised that Nauda had so much trouble retaining counsel. It seems that every lawyer who's come near Donald Trump winds up needing a lawyer of their own. And with respect to Nauda, Donald Trump got what he wanted, which is to delay things. He almost delayed things by a month by Nauda not having counsel. But in a sense, Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, got what he wanted too. He's developed evidence from the videotape showing that Walt Nauda took 65 boxes out of the storage room, returning only 25 of them. And the most important fact about this is that that moving of boxes and failure to return happened after 
the federal grand jury subpoenaed Donald Trump for the return of these specific documents. That's why it's not surprising to see Trump pivot to his defense that he did nothing wrong due to something called the Presidential Records Act. Donald Trump even gave speeches over the last week making all sorts of nonsense claims about this Presidential Records Act. Now look, if this is the understanding of the act that Trump's team is operating off of, then he's in even deeper trouble than I thought. No lawyer believes this. Only Trump's non-lawyer advisor contends that the Presidential Records Act somehow exempts him, because there's nothing in that act that says classified information is exempt or that the normal criminal laws don't apply to presidents. Of course that can't be the case. That would be insane. The Presidential Records Act was designed for the opposite, to make sure that presidents don't do anything with their materials if they're not personal. That was because of Richard Nixon, who wanted to abscond with all sorts of documents. What the Congress said is that if it's truly a personal record, you can keep them. So if Donald Trump ever actually received a true love letter from someone, he could keep that. But things that are nuclear secrets, military secrets, and so on, those aren't personal records by any stretch of the imagination. And indeed, if there's any doubt, the documents are marked classified, secret, top secret, and the like on the first cover page. So I think this is going nowhere fast for Donald Trump. Obergefell versus Hodges and the consolidated cases. Ms. Bonuato. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The intimate and committed relationships of same-sex couples, just like those of heterosexual couples, provide mutual support and are the foundation of family life in our society. Today our guest is Rob Reiner, one of the funniest and most decent people I know. Rob is the director of, like, the best movies ever, things like Princess Bride, Spinal Tap, American President, but he's also put his heart and time into fighting for our civil liberties. And we're here today, Rob, to discuss, I think, maybe the most important civil rights case of our generation, Obergefell versus Hodges, which is a 2015 ruling that found same-sex marriage to be a constitutionally protected right. But the fight for marriage equality began well, well before that, and you were a key part of that. That's why I'm so thrilled to have you here today. Uh, you were one of the co-founders of American Foundation for Equal Rights, which fought for marriage equality beginning in California. And you did so, honestly, at a time when very few thought a sweeping victory would be possible. I remember my sister, who's gay, told me in 2000 that she wanted to fight for marriage equality after graduating from University of Chicago Law School. And I told her I thought she was nuts. I was like, I clerked <laughs> on the Supreme Court. There's no chance of yeah. this. Yeah. No, so, it's, it, it's interesting you say that because... When we first started uh, the first, it was actually the first uh, federal challenge to anything that had to do with marriage equality. It was right on the heels of uh, Obama's historic victory as the first black president to become, uh, first black man to become president in 2008. And as we were celebrating that at the same time in California, they passed a ballot initiative, Proposition 8, which basically said that it bans same-sex marriage. It said marriages between a man and a woman, and it actually uh, amended the uh, California Constitution to say that people of same sex could not be married. 
And I was sitting with a friend of mine, Chad Griffin, who I knew since I was since he was 19 years old when I was making the American president. Uh, he was working for D.D. Myers in the Clinton administration. He was responsible for showing me around the White House and getting me to know. And he was he's gay. And he was saying he was very depressed. And I was sitting with my wife, Michelle, and another woman named Christina Shockey. And we were talking about what could we do? What could we do to here we are in California, the most liberal state in the country, and they're saying, you know, men of the same sex, women of the same sex can't get married. So we said, what can we do? We talked about possibly doing another ballot initiative. We thought, well, that's not going to work. Then the other side will put another ballot initiative. We'll go back and forth. Then we came up with the idea of a federal court challenge. In other words, we were going to say that Proposition 8, even though it was voted by the voters, I think it was like 52 to 48 percent, that it was unconstitutional that it flew in the face of the United States Constitution. So we decided that maybe that's the route to go. We were just discussing it. Somebody comes up to our table and she says, what are you talking about? And we tell her what we're talking about. She says, well, I think you might be interested to know that uh, Ted Olson has the same view as you do. And I said, what? And this is a woman who whose sister was married to Ted Olson at one point. And tell us who Ted Olson is. Ted Olson was the Solicitor General for George W. Bush. He was a very conservative lawyer, Republican, uh, down to his toes. And we thought, there's no way this guy is going to be on our side on this thing. So I said, Chad, why don't you go? We'll send you to New York, find out if this is true. He went to New York, talked to Ted Olson, came back and he said, I, I think he really believes that this uh, marriage is a bedrock uh, right uh, of all Americans, that it flies in the face of the 14th Amendment, of Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. He came to California and I sat down with him, looked him in the eye, and he was dead serious. He said, this is a, a very conservative idea, the idea of strengthening marriage, that marriage is, a, is, is the basis for uh, all families and the basis of uh, the fabric of our society is based on, on solid marriages. And it doesn't matter that it's men or women or men and men and women and women. And then he suggested that he have a co-counsel and that co-counsel would be David Boyce. Now, you have to understand, David Boyce was Al Gore's lawyer in the very famous case of Bush v. Gore. Ted Olson was George Bush's lawyer. So we had these two diametrically opposed lawyers legally, uh, you know, and not legally, but certainly, uh, you know, in terms of their, 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 think, their thought process about the, the world. And, and we said, look, this will take politics out of it, completely remove politics from this, and it will make it what it is, a civil rights issue. This is not about liberal or conservative. This is a civil rights issue. So the two of them fought it. We brought it all the way to the Supreme Court. We had a trial, actually, uh, in the district court. We won the case with witnesses. So we had a, a record to show. And then Lance Black, who is a great screenwriter, who wrote uh, the film about Harvey Milk, he wrote a play based on what had happened in the courtroom. Because 
part of what we were trying to do is not just win a legal case, but we wanted to uh, educate the public as to why this was important. And when you looked at families, every like you just said your sister is gay. It's either somebody in your family, a friend, somebody who you work with, and we wanted to normalize it and make it so that people wouldn't be afraid of uh, same sex. And so we put the play on, and it, it's, it, it educated people. We got people to understand it. And you have to understand that going into this, the same thoughts that, you know, people that, you know, your sister was saying and you were saying, pushing back to her and saying, no, this is impossible. We had a meeting with the ACLU and with Lambda Legal, which is a representative of the gay community and legal representation. And they said, you absolutely must not do this. This is a bad, bad idea. You're going to set back gay rights decades when you do this. Because at the time, there was only four or five states that had marriage equality being legal. I think Massachusetts was one. Right. And these organizations, Rob, were not opposed to marriage equality. They just thought you were doing it too fast. They were worried about an adverse Supreme Court decision. Exactly. They thought we're going to lose in the Supreme Court and we're going to set things back. But Chad Griffin, who is a brilliant strategist and ultimately became the president of the HRC, the Human Rights Campaign, which is the premier uh, gay advocacy group in America, he said, we're going to win this. Even though against all legal advice, he said, we're going to win this because we did our analysis. We looked at the Supreme Court at the time. It was a 5-4 court. It was split. Five uh, was skewed towards the Republicans. But the swing vote at the time was Anthony Kennedy. And Anthony Kennedy had voted on two different Supreme Court decisions. One was Lawrence v. Texas. The other was a Romer case in Colorado. And he sided with the gay community in both those cases. So we thought if we can just convince one person in America that this is the right thing to do, we'll win this case. And we eventually did win the case and it opened the door for many more states to start uh, 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 allowing uh, uh, marriage equality. And then Obergefell came on the heels of that. And you can talk about Obergefell because that's, that's a... It's a, a, a major civil rights case in this country. So, yeah. So I wanted to just, as you thought about that timing question about whether to move for this or not, I know you told me once just, you know, you said to me something like, look, we could have waited, but people can't wait to be married. Um, and sometimes people are going to die and they want to be married before they die. How did that human element impact like your views on the timing question? Well, because my very good friend, Chad Griffin, who is gay, I'm looking at this guy and I'm saying, why should I have more rights than he does? He's an American citizen. I'm an American citizen. There's no reason why I he should be a second-class citizen. We've gone through this. Our Constitution has done this for you know hundreds of years. There was a time women couldn't vote. Only people, white people with property could vote. There was a time that whites and blacks couldn't marry each other. So the Constitution is constantly expanding our rights, and we felt that it was time to expand it one more time. Yeah, and that's really what sets up the Obergefell case, because James Obergefell, like, 
two decades before the case began, had met and fallen in love with his life partner, a guy named John Arthur. And in 2011, Arthur was diagnosed with ALS, and they knew Arthur's death was imminent. And so they wanted to get married. Um, so they traveled to Maryland, where same sex was legal. Um, but at that point, Arthur could barely move. So the couple were actually, they were wed inside of a medical transport plane wow. on the airport wow. tarmac. Wow. And then three months later, Arthur dies. Mm. And Ohio law forbade his death certificate from listing Obergefell as his spouse. Wow. And wow. so that's how Obergefell files his lawsuit after, you know, his partner, his husband has died. Wow. And he says... Wow. These, this Ohio law, like the law in many other states at the time, violates the due process clause of the Constitution and the equal protection clause of the Constitution. That was taking rights away that, as you were saying a moment ago, Rob, belonged to everyone, you, mm -hmm. you, everyone else. So, um, so it goes up to the Supreme Court, and um, I had the companion case out of Utah, but Obergefell is the one that they decide to hear. And they, uh, you know, it's an intense oral argument. Um, but the court does five to four say that the Constitution guarantees this right of marriage equality. Um, you know, Rob, one of the things we're doing on this courtside podcast is trying to just take legal decisions and put them in plain English. And you're no, there's no one better than that than you. So can you just kind of tell us what does Obergefell say? Well, it basically, you know, and it's interesting because for years, for 50 years, we all felt that uh, Roe v. Wade was the law of the land because it had been decided, but it had never been codified. So there was no law on the books that said it was okay. It was a, a woman's right to have uh, the medical attention she wanted. But here in Obergefell, it was said. It said, if you love somebody, you love somebody. It, if whether it's the opposite sex or the same sex, you should be allowed to marry that person, and that only strengthens the institution of marriage. And that's what it's proved. Now, subsequent to the uh, ruling that the Supreme Court gave on Oberfeld, they did pass a law in Congress, and that law basically codified the idea that it is the law of the land that people of the same sex can get married. So I think that's not to say that, it's, that it can't be overturned, because we've seen things be overturned, but I think it's a—and you'll, you'll correct me on this, Neil, if I'm wrong, but I think it's— uh, more difficult to overturn a law that's been codified and that has already been upheld by the Supreme Court. Sure, absolutely. Um, I think it is hard. And I think, you know, as much as some people will try and tear down this decision and trying to attack marriage equality, at the end of the day, I think it's here to stay. And the way I hope in you're which right. I really hope you're right, because, you know, uh, Justice Thomas indicated when uh, uh, when Roe was struck down, he indicated that uh, Oberfeld may be next. He did say that. So, you know, the, I, I hope you're right. I believe you're right. But you, you never know. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, can Justice Thomas get four more votes for that proposition? Maybe, but it seems tough. And in part, yeah. it's tough because the decision embodies really the American spirit of liberty and equality. And, you know, I know you pay, pay so much attention, Rob, to the craft of writing and words. And 
Um, you know, I just want to read a bit of the Obergefell decision and to just get your reaction to it, because this is so moving to me. Here's what they said. They said, Justice Kennedy writing for five justices, no union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some of the petitioners in this case demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply, sorry, it's hard to read, it's so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. Yeah, and it can't be said any better than that. And uh, I think Obergefell, in in that case, uh, made the, the same assessment that we made when we brought our case, which is there was a, a feeling human being that was in the center of this court and that he would decide in the right way. Now, what you read is a very human thing and very emotional, as you said, but it's also based in law, which is the 14th Amendment. And he did talk about equal protection and those things. So he did, uh, it wasn't just a, a wonderful flowery uh, recitation. It was also grounded in the law of the Constitution. Yeah, and it had such profound impact. Thanks for listening to Courtside. You will have noticed that there aren't any ads on Courtside. That's because Courtside is entirely listener-supported. You can support the show at neilcatial.substack.com and come back next week. Stop over at neilcatial.substack.com to support the show, and there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and some bonus material. And so you can sign up so you don't miss anything. I remember, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't tell you when they're going to hand down decisions. And so big controversial stuff always gets handed down at the end of June, typically on the last day. So I'd be going trudging up to the Supreme Court for the last two weeks of June, basically every day thinking, oh, maybe it'll come down. Maybe it won't. The decision won't come down today. So on the second to last day of the term, we walked into the court and, you know, we didn't really think the decision would come down any day, but the last day. And, but, you know, you never know. So there were about a hundred protesters against marriage equality on the courthouse steps and about a hundred uh, in favor of it. And they had their signs and it was very peaceful and stuff. And then we went in and at one minute to 10, um, Justice Stevens came into the courtroom and Justice Stevens had retired from the court. So him being there, we knew something big was happening. And so the buzz in the courtroom really expanded. And then everyone comes in, the justices, and Chief Justice Roberts says, Justice Kennedy has the opinion of the court in Obergefell versus Hodges. And we think, okay, that's a pretty good sign. Yeah. But for about six minutes... Justice Kennedy is reading from his opinion all about how the tradition of marriage is between one man and one woman, and that it goes <laughs> oh, back centuries. Oh my and God. so I'm sitting there sinking in my chair, <laughs> tears in my eyes, thinking, we lost this, we miscalculated, those oh. naysayers that were giving you, Rob, trouble were right, we're going <laughs> oh, too God. fast. Yeah. And 
So he's saying tradition of marriage, one man and one woman, and then he paused, and then he said, that tradition doesn't stop there. And then wow. he talked about the traditions of liberty and equality. And um, we walked out of the courtroom, maybe 20, 30 minutes later, and um, I remember it so vividly because we walk out of those big doors at the court and on the Supreme Court Plaza were seven, 8,000 people, arms linked together, singing America the Beautiful. Mm, wow. And those hundred protesters of marriage <laughs> equality were nowhere to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. That's great. Wow. Wow. What a moment. What a moment. Yeah. Yeah. I remember hey, the what moment. What was your moment? Well, yeah. the moment when we knew that we were uh, going to be victorious in California, uh, we were jumping up and down. It was, it was, we were, it was wild. And then uh, we had, you know, we had two sets of plaintiffs. We had uh, two. Uh, matter of fact, today, you know, it's now the tenth anniversary of our victory in uh, with Prop Eight, and we're having a celebration tonight with uh, Ted Olson and Lady Olson, his wife, and a bunch of us are going to be getting together. The the plaintiffs. Uh, both women and both men, and uh, the uh, the men were down here in uh, in Los Angeles. The women were up in 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 San Francisco, and Kamala Harris married the two women, and uh, Antonio Villaraigosa, who was mayor of Los Angeles, married the two the two men down here. So that was the moment I, I I'll never forget. Oh. How wonderful. And what a great party tonight. Oh, oh yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. So it's so it's so fitting right after we're talking about this. <laughs> now, some people weren't partying that day. Um, and one of them or 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 four of them are on the United States Supreme Court. So they file what are known as dissents, which is basically they're saying we disagree with the majority. And do you remember kind of could you tell us a little about what those arguments were in the dissents? What were they complaining about to Justice Kennedy? Well, I, you know, mainly they were talking about how this has always been the way it's been. Uh, marriage has always been between a man and a woman. And, and uh, there was a lot of arguments in the uh, district case that you were going to destroy the institution of marriage. They went to uh, bestiality. They went to pedophilia. They went to, they, you, they did everything. They threw the book at it saying that somehow when two people of the same sex were going to get married, that was going to completely destroy the institution of marriage and that children raised in this atmosphere were going to be uh, perverted in some way. It was all went completely against all what the science has told us and all of, uh, you know, all the studies have shown us. And as a matter of fact, one of the guys who argued uh, against us eventually came around and 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 went the other way and wrote a, a piece in the uh, in the New York Times saying I was wrong about all that. Wow. Um, now, to be fair to the dissenters, they also are basically saying, look, this should be up to the states, right? They're 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 definitely talking about the tradition of marriage and so on, but their ultimate view is we're five justices sitting in Washington, DC or nine justices with a full court, but why should we make this decision for the American people, right? Well, that is that was one of the decisions, and one one of the the states' rights uh, uh, issue is always brought up when uh, justices don't want to uh, look at something that goes what we argued goes against the United States Constitution. Things left up to the states, you cannot pass laws 
uh, state laws like what we had in California, you can't have that if it flies against flies in the face of the U.S. Constitution. So those are decisions that have to be made by the chief, by the Supreme Court. Now, them saying states' right, that's been the argument for why states should be d- decide whether or not they should have slavery or states should decide whether or not uh, a woman should have a right to an abortion. These are the kinds of things that um, uh, it, it's an old trope, you know, when you say states' rights. It just means uh, we don't want to, we don't believe in this, we don't agree with this, mm-hmm. so we'll let states decide what they want to do. But yeah, there are certain so can- basic rights the right to vote, the right to, you know, the, for everyone to vote. These are not things that are, should be left up to the states, whether or not, a, you know, you should be allowed to own slaves. Those are not things that should be left up to the states. Absolutely. So you've also got some other kind of bizarre rhetoric in the dissent. Like Justice Alito says, this is a quote, I assume those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes but if they repeat those views in public, they will be labeled, risk being labeled as bigots and treated by such governments, employers, and schools. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you if you go in uh, in public or you you use an n the n word or whatever, you're going to be talked as a, a racist. If you're looking at a particular group of people, whether it's uh, uh, you know African American, black people, Jews, uh, Asians, uh, whatever. You're gonna and you you're you don't like that or you don't like those people to be married. You're gonna be viewed as racist, and there's no getting around that. So too bad. You know what I mean? Too bad. <laughs> okay, um, I want to switch gears here and talk just a little bit about your filmmaking because you've spoken in previous interviews about your focus on the dramatic spine of a film. The idea being that there's this kind of common thread of sorts that connects the beginning of the film to the end. And I've also heard you talk about your love of puzzles and in particular mm. crossword puzzles and how filmmaking is kind of a mega puzzle of sorts. Well, so- well, the, the, the filmmaking process, the actual shooting of a film is like a puzzle because you're shooting out of order, you know, and you're the only one that has the picture that's on the box what it ultimately should look like when it's all put together. So you're thinking in those terms. But the first thing you talked about, which is the spine of a, and that's the spine of a script. And this is something William Goldman taught me. He said, every scene that you put in a film should connect to the spine. It should either move the story forward or say something about the character that will move the story forward. You can't deviate from the spine. If you do, you better have the, it better be the best tap dance or the best action sequence ever, because if it doesn't further the story, you want to stop and go, hey, look at this, we're doing this dance, and then get right back on the story. So I always look at every film as each scene should should move uh, the story forward. That's super interesting. And I want to ask, when you started to put the fight for marriage equality together, are you almost thinking in filmmaking terms? Are you thinking of this spine idea that everything's got to move things forward, that you're orchestrating a sequence of events? Well, yeah, in a way, because like I say, it's not just a, a fighting a, a legal battle. You're also fighting uh, uh, the, the, the hearts and minds of people to, to uh, put the country in a position where they're accepting of this idea. So you have to tell a story. And the idea that uh, that Lance Black wrote a play 
that showed people and that we put it on Broadway. We had big stars on Broadway. We, we did it here in Los Angeles and we had some big stars. We had Brad Pitt and George Clooney and, you know, all these great stars that and put it on YouTube that told people this is the story we're telling. We're not, it's not just a legal case. It's a story about human beings and their right to express their love to the people they love. Yeah. And one of the things in Supreme Court litigation I think about all the time is the multiple audiences. So one is the audience of the Supreme Court and the nine justices there. Another is the audience when I'm giving an argument, the literal audience in the courtroom, the 400 or so people who are seeing it. And maybe if they're listening to it online or learning about it, you know, that group of people. And then there's an audience that is much more amorphous, the audience of history, the, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of how does this argument live and change human history? How is it going to be regarded and thought about? So you got all of these different things. For you, you did so much kind of Hollywood-centric work around marriage equality, which I know was done you know, because you wanted to educate people and explain the civil rights that were at stake. But did you think that that might also have an effect on the court itself? Um, I didn't have any illusions about the four justices who voted against it. And I had a lot of confidence that we had at least four justices who were going to be on our side. And like I said, we looked and calculated in the puzzle of it that Anthony Kennedy was going to be with us. We just felt, based on the rulings that he had uh, issued in the past, we felt he would be with us. So Yes, you're playing to the nine justices, but in our case, we were playing to one justice. Hmm. One justice that we knew if we can get this guy to be on our side, it could change history. And, you know, it's interesting because that seems so different, actually, and kind of the reverse of what I think about you as a filmmaker. Because as a filmmaker, you don't appeal to one person, you appeal to almost your themes are universal they're about life and love and friendship and but you want you know, to hear that... the crazy you want to hear the crazy thing about all that yeah i appeal to myself i you know that's the only audience that i have to satisfy and i hope that by satisfying myself with something i want to with something i want to express something i want to communicate that that communicates to everyone now it doesn't always you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, satisfy myself and people say, get the hell out of here with that. But ultimately, that's my process. I look to satisfy the one person myself, and hopefully that'll satisfy other people. Well, then you must be one damn good barometer. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, no, because I made 20 <laughs> films. A lot of them people say, you know, get out of here with that film. Okay, I, I didn't see that film because all I've seen <laughs> is just amazing. Um, yeah. Well, we love you, man. So yeah. thank you so much for doing this and spending a little time with us on Courtside. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. Stop over at neilcatial.substack.com to support the show. And there you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and bonus material. And you can sign up so you don't miss anything. That's neilkatyal.substack.com n-e-a-l-k-a-t-y-a-l .substack.com The music for this show was composed by the artists Dawson Hallow and Ronnie Bar-Hadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson and Tyler Morissette at Voltage. Thank you for listening 
and I'll have a new episode of Courtside for you next week.